Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Thank you for uh, gathering here this morning. Uh, thank you for bringing the church into uh, this space. If we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie, and it's my privilege and joy to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. For those of you that are gathering with us at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, around your dining room table, and just thanks for inviting us into those spaces. Uh, we just sang, right, like, oh, my soul, remember. And there is this phrase that you might hear around Crosspoint from time to time that this call to preach the gospel to yourself, all right? And that might seem a little weird because you think, well, do I need to get on stage and put the headset microphone on and then just sort of like yell at myself in the mirror? Like, what does that actually mean? But what we just sang there is this remembrance that for one, we have been bombarded all week. You've been bombarded with competing messages of what the good life is and what you are to attain and do and all of that and it just leaves us exhausted. And so there's this call and we hear it throughout the scriptures, you hear it in the Psalms, like, oh my soul, like remember. I don't know about you, but I need the discipline of remembering. And so as we've gathered here this morning, I don't know what brought you, what drew you here, maybe it was obligation, maybe it was just like, well, this is just what we do, but here's the reality. Like, your soul and my soul needs to be awakened, it needs to remember, it needs to recall the mercies of God that are new every single morning. And by God's grace, he gives us a community of people to belong to, so we might remember, we might recall, and we might proclaim to one another. So you singing songs a moment ago, help me remember the good news of the gospel. We get God's word that helps us remember this as well. And so it's my privilege and joy to be able to open up God's word as we continue this series called Come and See, this invitation each and every week to remember who Jesus is, the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus in the great book of John. And so this morning, we're gonna be at the end of John chapter 11 and into the first few verses of John chapter 12. And so as always, you can go to cplife.church on your phone. You'll find the text there this morning. If you, didn't write, if you brought a Bible, you can follow along that way as well. But there on your phone and anything that's on the screen, uh, there's space to be able to take notes. You'll see uh, that stuff listed there. So I'd encourage you to follow along. I'm going to read this and then we'll make our way back through it. But remembering as Pastor Eric preached last week, this is on the heels then of the resurrection, of the, the raising of the dead from the dead uh, Lazarus, all right, this profound story. And now we're like, okay, what are people's responses going to be? Like this sign of all signs has just taken place. And what is going to be the response? Is God gonna continue to bring this new life? What will that look like? And what opposition might there be? And so if you've been with us in this series, you know, you can expect by now, there will be opposition, some are going to believe and some are going to dig their heels in and want to fight this Jesus movement. So we pick it up in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. It says this, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nations and not for the nation only but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. 
Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with his disciples. And now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. And they were looking for Jesus. There's like a buzz in the air, right? Asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. And Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Verse 9. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, as we look at this, I want us to approach it with kind of three sections here. There is a, it tells us, right, at the end of chapter 11, like there is a plot, or one could say there is a scheme that is being worked out by the people to do away with Jesus. Then we're going to look at what it looks like to live a life surrendered to Jesus. And then I want to talk about, which might seem kind of strange, but we're going to talk about the scent or the smell of God's people, all right? And try and weave those all together here. But the very first thing we see, like right out of the gate, is there's a response, as there has been throughout the book of John, when Jesus does a sign, when he does a particular miracle, some respond in faith, but others want nothing to do with it. In fact, it's not that they're just indifferent, but what you actually see is a deliberate opposition to Jesus. Prior to this, there'd been threats against Jesus' life. He'd had a confrontational teaching. He's done a miracle. He's done some sort of sign. People would pick up stones to stone him, but he would, he would escape. But this now is going like at a whole other level. Like there is a deliberate plan. They've gathered the Sanhedrin. They've gathered the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders. They've all got in a room together, even a group of people that normally didn't get along. They didn't see the eye to eye, eye to eye. They had different theological convictions. They had different political convictions. They had all kinds of differences, and yet they were united on one thing. We've got to get rid of Jesus. So that's their unifying mission. It's like, let's get rid of him. All right, so that's the scheme that's taking place here. Now, it raises a question that I want us to consider not only to help answer, okay, why are they wanting to get rid of Jesus? And there's, at some level, there is an answer given here in the text. But I know my disposition is to read this and to think, I can't believe that they're doing this. And yet the scriptures, as God's design and gift, they are a mirror that is to be held up. And as I look at this, and I see the people that, man, you've gotta have a level of hard-heartedness that you see a dude raised from the dead, 
and you're like, I gotta kill somebody right now, right? I mean, poor Lazarus, did you hear it at the end? Dude just got through being raised from the dead. He's done that once, been there, done that, and now there's a threat against his life. There's a hit out on him and Jesus. Lazarus like, what in the world, man? Like, I thought I was done with this. Like, do I, I don't even get like a, a moment to sort of just breathe and relax. He gets like one meal with some friends, and then there's a threat. So I can look at that and think, that's nuts, that's crazy. But it's a mirror, and it's being held up. And it's asking me to consider, it's asking you to consider the deeper reasons of like, why won't they actually believe? Why won't they follow Jesus? Why won't they surrender to Jesus? Why won't they trust Jesus? Like, what's going on? Why won't they believe? And there's an answer given in the text that I think kind of keeps it at a surface level, and it's specific to that time and that place, but then if we would dig deeper, there's a root cause. There's something much deeper, much more profound that's going on here. So at one level, you know this historically, God's people are living under the rule and reign of the Roman Empire, right? They don't want to live under their rule and reign, but at this point, as long as they maintain sort of the status quo, as long as they don't rock the boat too much, they can kind of do, for the most part, what they want to do. Yeah, they got to pay a lot of taxes. Yeah, they wish that they were completely free. But by and large, they're like, hey, we've got the temple. We can do our religious practices. We can kind of come and go as we please. We can gather for things like the Passover. We can engage in all these feasts. Like, as long as we don't make a big ruckus in the empire, things are going to be okay. And so this is some of the, the context. It says in verse 48, well, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, all right? And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So on one level, if you're a Jewish person living in that time, in that place, like you could maybe understand, you're like, the Romans, like if they get word that there's this Messiah, that there's this person that's you know, making a declaration that he's the king, like all of these things, they might come and just stomp that out and it's gonna be really bad for God's people. They're like, we don't wanna lose. Like, can we just keep what we have right now? And so at one level, it's understandable. And that's the part that's specific to that time and place. Like, I'm guessing none of you this week were like, man, what do we do about this Roman rule, right? Like, we don't, we're not thinking that. But there is a deeper issue that is present. Because for the people there, ultimately, yes, or at one level, yes, they don't want to you know, have their lives disrupted. But the bigger root issue that's going on, the root issue that plagued them a couple thousand years ago, that's present in my heart. It's in your heart. It's not just a problem out there. Like we brought it into the church this morning. Like we all carried this in with us is this hunger, this longing for power and for control. Ultimately, they won't trust, they won't believe, they won't surrender because they want to continue to do what they want to do. They don't want their lives disrupted. They've got a relatively good life. I don't know, they're thinking like, do I want to submit to Jesus? And so when they see him doing these things, they realize like, man, this guy's got some power, some might, authority. There's more and more people that are following him, but they're afraid. They're afraid to give up. They're afraid to trust. They're afraid to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. We all love the idea as Jesus as our savior. Like we want a little sampling of that, right? But lordship is a buying in, right? This is like you back in the day when Costco would serve samples, right? You go around, I'll try a little bit of this, a little bit of this. And they're like, do you want to purchase it? No, no, thank you, but I'm good with the sample, right? That's how it's fine at Costco. It's not okay with Jesus, right? 
give me that, give me a little taste, I'll sample this, a little bit of that. But when it comes to lordship, when it comes to purchase, when it comes to buying all in, like all our chips in, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And not only are they not ready, they're like, we gotta get rid of him. And so this level here, here's, here's the reality. We can bring our doubts. We want you, if you're somebody that's wrestling with Christianity, regardless if you've, you know, I think that happens whether you're a Christian or not. Like, there are doubts and things. We are pro-bringing those things and conversing. And yet, if we're honest, those things can be sort of this smokescreen, this thing that comes up. We're really not interested in wrestling with the true questions. We're more interested in protecting ourselves. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said it this way. He said, People try to persuade us that the objections against Christianity spring from doubt. The objections against Christianity spring from insubordination, the dislike of obedience, rebellion against all authority. And as a result, people have hitherto been beating the air in the struggle against objections because they have fought intellectually with doubt instead of fighting morally with rebellion. What's he driving at? He's saying, the fundamental issue of the heart. It's not these surface level things, it's what's going on. And there is this part of me that does not want to submit, does not want to surrender, wants to say, I'm gonna do what I want, what makes me feel good, you do you, like all of that stuff that is present in the culture and also present here. Kierkegaard is saying, listen, at the end of the day, like we're asking, we can masquerade as like, oh, I've got these doubts and these questions. No, 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 we've got a rebellion problem. We reach for the fruit. We want the power. We want the control. That is what was happening there. And the reason the scriptures are so timely is it's not just the people back then. It's you and me. We wrestle with this. So again, it's not that we're anti-questions and doubt. Bring those things. But as we get further into this and we see Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, and then you've got, you've got the pseudo-king, all right, and Pilate, and you've got Jesus, the true king, and they're having this dialogue, and at one point, we're gonna see Pilate go, well, what is truth? Is he really objectively interested in having a philosophical conversation at that moment, or is he evading the fact that the true king is right here in flesh and blood, and my only response is to submit to him and to trust him? It's not an intellectual issue. It's an issue of the will. Like, will we bend our will to Jesus? Will we trust him? Now, what's so fascinating is I said this whole section is like there's this scheme, there's this plot, but if you've been reading through and following along in the book of John, all right, time and time again, we see human plans, human endeavors, human approaches to things, and it's a scheme, and it's a plan, and sometimes it's even well thought out. And yet, if we can use this language, there is a scheme, there is a strategy, there is a plot by God the King that supersedes all of it, and he's like, they're just kind of playing into like what he's already planned. Like we're just in his hands and he's like, oh, cool. Like you go ahead and you plot the death of Jesus. Wait till I turn that upside down and change the world. Go ahead. And he even uses people like the high priest who's going to speak a word. Did you hear? I'll put it up on the screen here in a moment. Who's going to speak some truth that he has no comprehension of. He literally declares what their plan is, what their scheme. And you can kind of imagine him kind of smug, sitting back like, I mean, because did you notice his language? He's like, as he says to them, he's like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Thankfully, I'm here. I am Caiaphas. I'm in charge. I'm the leader. Everybody bow. Everybody listen to me. I've got this figured out. All we're going to do, guys, we're going to save the nation. We're going to keep our rights. We're going to keep all this. 
we just got to get rid of one dude. We get rid of one guy, maybe his buddy Lazarus too, but after that, we're going to save everything. And so he says these words. He says this, you know nothing at all, all right? So kind of a, perhaps a certain level of arrogance to say that, right? You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So Caiaphas steps up. He's like, guys, I'm going to save the day. I've got a plan. I'm going to put this together, all right? Um, he's like, this is all we need to do. And he said, tells us he did not say this on his, on his own. And then later on in the text, in verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, all right, there should be maybe some lights that are going off of like, oh my goodness, do you realize what he just communicated? All right, here's a guy who's saying, we just got to get rid of Jesus. And we'll save everything. And God who's superseding, who's scheming, who's plotting, who's planning, who put a plan together before the time began that said one day he's gonna send one that would crush the head of the serpent, deal, away, deal with all of our sin and our rebellion and shame. It's like, yeah, you're right. You just get rid of the one and it's going to save everybody. Like what he's talking about here is substitution. Now, I don't think Caiaphas had in his mind the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the work of Christ, but it's there like, that's what's being communicated. And don't hear that as some theological thing for just a you know, few people to, to you know, talk about or the seminarians or whatever. This is so personal. Like, this should make our heart sing that Jesus was substituted. Like, he died in your place and in my place. Hear, hear these words from the cross of Christ by John Stott. I've shared this quote before, but it's so helpful to keep coming back to because what... My soul needs to remember this, to remember my sin problem and the substitutionary work of Christ who makes a way for me to actually have life and joy. Here's what he says. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God Genesis 3, reaching for the fruit, I want to be God, all right? Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. I'll take the throne. I'll rule and reign, says man. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Death, separation from God, hell. That's what he's talking about. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts, accepts penalties that belong to man alone. So when Caiaphas shows up, he's like, guys, I got a plan. We're going to get rid of one guy. We're going to substitute. We're going to put this guy. To, he'll die, and it'll actually save everybody else. John, as he's pending this under the inspiration of the Spirit, is like, oh, this is good. Do you see this? Like He's kind of looking ahead and knowing where the story is going to go, and we know where the story's heading. He's like, oh my goodness. He's speaking. It's this irony here. He's speaking a truth that he's fully, not even fully aware of at any level. And God is showcasing. You can put your plan together. You can put Jesus on a cross. You can make it look like certain defeats. But three days later, my friends, there's going to be resurrection. There's going to be new life bursting forth right in the midst of this broken, decaying world. And all of the curse is going to start to be undone. As far as the curse is found, Jesus is going to renew and restore everything. This is why the Apostle Paul would write to the church in Corinth in the most succinct line, maybe, in all of the scriptures about this substitution. It just says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 
he made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus in case you're wondering, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus substituted in your place and in my place. My soul needs to remember that. Your soul needs to remember that. The people back then and the other issue with Rome, the reality is they've got a pride issue. They've got a, power, a hunger for power and control, wanting to be their own God. And look at the mess that's gotten all of us in. And Jesus says, I'll deal with your sin problem. I'll become sin. And not only that, not only am I going to be punished in your place, you get all the benefit. You get the righteousness of Christ. So I don't know how you felt this morning, all right, when you rolled into church this morning or you turned on the live stream and you walked up in here. How, however you felt, the reality is if you're in Christ, you walked in as a saint, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter maybe that you yelled at your kids. But ultimately, right, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't change your standing, all right? It doesn't change your identity. You walked in as a saint. You have the righteousness of Christ. I mean, that is a good deal. This is substitution. Like, we should get excited about this. And what happens here then, at the end of chapter 11, I think it's this marvelous picture of the substitutionary work that is going to happen. Because next week, we get into the triumphal entry. We're going to see humility and weakness. And so even in this text, there's pictures of what the world would say of power and might, and there's pictures of humility and of surrender and of weakness. And in that space, we find strength. And so as we get into chapter 12, in light of this scheme, and God is obviously working these bigger plans, there's a response that we see. So I want to look for a moment at the surrender that we see, the glad submission, the willingness to follow Jesus. It's not that Mary that we see in here is perfect. It's not that she always gets it right. But we get a snapshot. We get a beautiful, marvelous picture. And so it tells us six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, which is even just an interesting clue. It literally means like house of the poor or the oppressed, the afflicted, right? Imagine that, that street sign, welcome to Bethany, home of the poor, right? It's like, wait, what? Thought we were going to a nice neighborhood, right? Like it, that is just, even where they're gathered, these are just these kind of clues that the story of the Bible is not for those that have it all figured out and the powerful and the mighty and those that can just orchestrate everything. No, the story of the Bible is there's one king, there's one hero, and it's Jesus. And the rest of us, we live in Bethany, poor, afflicted, oppressed. We don't have it together. Welcome to the neighborhood. That's church, right? And so they have this, they have this meal. They're gathering with some friends, all right? It says, they gather there in Bethany where Lazarus was. You've got Lazarus, you've got Mary, you've got Martha, you've got other friends. And it's a party. I mean, I think we can get this, right? I mean, we throw parties for the Olympics. We throw parties for birthdays. We throw parties for anniversaries, right? I think it's fair to say, dude was raised from the dead. Somebody ought to throw a party. Like, get that man a cake or something, right? Yeah, right? It comes out, he's been in the grave for four days. The like, least they could do is, like, let's gather some friends over because this is crazy what just happened. And so there they are, they're in Bethany, the house of the poor, all right, the place of the afflicted, and yet, who's reclining at the table? Lazarus, this walking miracle. Martha's doing her thing, as we know, like she's reading things, she's serving. And then in verse three, here comes Mary. It says, then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, 
anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's a lot of perfume for one. You got a whole pound, right? I'm that person that somebody sprays a couple things of, you know, of some sort of scent, and I'm like, whoo, got an instant headache, all right? So, like, that's just how I respond. That, that cosmetic section you got to walk through at the mall when you used to be able to go to the mall, stuff like that. I'm just, like, holding my nose, like, got to get through, right? Like, that's me. Now, there's a whole pound. There's a lot of perfume. There's a lot of scent. And we'll talk about the value of it in a moment. But what I want you to see here, this is a snapshot of surrender, when you and I understand the substitutionary work of Jesus, that we put ourselves, try to put ourselves in the place of God, and yet God himself comes and dies in our place. Like, when we understand that, what we see here in Mary's response, man, this is the surrendered life. This is what it looks like to lay everything down. This is what it looks like to trust Jesus, even if we don't know how it's all going to turn out. And there is joy here. And so just a couple things in the text. The first, this snapshot, it's humility. She begins to wash Jesus' feet. I mean, this is for the low of the low. You would have a servant do this. If you're, having a, if you're having at least a halfway decent party, right, you're having this gathering, like, you wouldn't be doing that for anybody else. Like, you'd have somebody, and that's their designated role, that's their task. It's somebody that didn't measure up. It's like, hey, I know you might be in Bethany, but you're not even at Bethany level right now. Like, you have to wash the feet. But when she comes up against Jesus, his power, his might, his love, his grace, it decimates her pride. And the only response is, what can I do? Not to earn the affection of Jesus. It's not to get to earn the present, to be in the presence of Jesus. She's invited. He's made a way. He's the one that's leading. But she's like, in light of the fact that I get to be in his presence, like, how can I respond? She responds with all humility. This causes us to ask, like, what does your life look like? Is there a humility about you? Is there a willingness in my life? Is there a humility? Is there a willingness to serve? Jesus said, follow me. He also told us, the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this following Jesus, this Jesus way, also involves dying to self. And the world will scream at you, do not die to self unless you want to be miserable. And Jesus in love screams back, die to yourself if you want to have life. And we get it so goofed up, but she gets it. She begins to humble herself. And then there's this vulnerability. Surrender also looks like vulnerability. It tells us there she's, she's poured out the perfume. The same account is in Matthew and in Mark as well. The alabaster jar gets broken. It's poured out. The other accounts say it even goes on his head. There's enough, there's enough of this. It can go on his head, run down his body. It's on his feet. And then she begins to wipe his feet, not with a cloth, all right, but with her hair. And so there's a certain level of this that we just got to remember, right? Maybe we've heard this so many times we've just kind of grown used to it. This is a weird thing that's happening, right? Like you're at a really nice restaurant, you're gathered around, like somebody comes and has this sort of behavior, you're like, there would be on the other end of the table, like, what is going on? Did you, did you see her? And she lost her mind, like what's happening, right? Like there would have been all of that stuff. Man, she's all in. She's completely surrendered. She humbles herself. She realized that's the place of life at the feet of Jesus. And then this show of 
intimacy, this vulnerability. A woman would not let her hair down in that part of the world at that particular time in that culture, except for when she was alone with the, in the presence of her husband. Like, this is sort of provocative. This would have caught, I mean, there would have been, if it hadn't, if it, if it wasn't generating conversation about the perfume and the feet washing, to do this, everyone would be like, what in the world is happening? Like, it's hard to even wrap our heads around, like, the awkwardness of this, the, how shocking it would have been, the potential, not only shame, the what legitimate punishment she might have faced for doing something this provocative. She opens herself up, and she's like, I don't care. And it's not because anything inappropriate is happening, but she is caught up in worship of Jesus. So this picture, the snapshot of surrender, you've got humility, vulnerability, but also security. I told you what the town stands for, right? So I'm guessing Mary isn't coming from a lot of money. Mary doesn't probably have a great savings account. Mary isn't walking through life just thinking like, oh, everything's great. I've got plenty of resources. When Judas responds and says, that money could have been used for the poor, though he cares nothing for the poor, he tells us the amount, 300 denarii. An average worker, so think even just minimum wage worker in that day and that, that time, would receive a denarii at the end of a work day. All right? You factor in Sabbaths, you know, whole year. We're roughly, we're 300. We're basically a year's income. And so even if somebody's on the lower end of the economic scale there, and they're just making minimum wage, you think about it right? Do you own, I was thinking about this week, I'm not sure I own any possession, all right, that's worth a year's wages, regardless of how much you make. And the house doesn't count because the bank owns that, you know what I mean, right? So like, what in the world? Like, do we actually have something? You think about this, for this woman living in that time in that place, who's going to provide, who's going to care for? The fact that she had this thing that was worth a year's wages, she sacrifices it. She's like, the most secure place to be is at the feet of Jesus, trusting Jesus, surrender to Jesus, not following my will, but following him wherever it would go. She's not put her security in this perfume and all the money that it was worth. She's put her security in the finished work of Christ, in this story. Do I have that kind of surrender? Do you have that kind of surrender? That, that's the place of joy. That's the place where life is found. And I have to ask myself, like in the end of chapter 11, where I can critique the religious leaders, also, I mean, we know what Judas is about to do, and it tells us there that he's going to be the one that betrays Jesus. He's the traitor. But that response, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the poor, all right? Clearly, Jesus cares about the poor. But he's like, no, what she has chosen this worship of me, this apparent extravagance, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, there is no gift, there is no response that is over the top. We would look at this and be like, it's fanatical. No, 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 we're not fanatical enough. If I truly understood what Jesus has done for me, the substitutionary work, there is nothing, literally nothing, that I own, that I possess, that I have abilities, time, talent, treasure, there's nothing that is like out about, there's, there's nothing that I shouldn't be like, here you go, here you go, Jesus, because at the end of the day, anything that I would give, I still get the better end of the deal. I get the righteousness of Christ. I don't care if I give you my house, my car, my talents, my trips, my free time, whatever, right? That's what's being communicated, and she gets this. But Judas has this response, look, it could have been given to the port. 
And what you have there is this person that's, he's the cynic. You know, he's a thief. And I can look at that again and be like, ugh, can you believe this guy? What a jerk. He's doing this, going to betray Jesus. Except this, again, is a mirror. And I guarantee you, if I'm in that spot, I don't know if I'm verbalizing, but what's going through my mind? Masquerading simply as like, well, let's just be, let's be reasonable at this. Let's be cautious. Let's, let's, let's make sure we think this through before we go ahead. Oh, she broke the bottle. There's the perfume. It's gone, right? Before all that, like, I can find, I would, I'm sure of it that I would be there at least with the thoughts in my head that this is over the top. And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's not about, it's the right response. Will you be surrendered to me? She's all in. She makes the decision. There's no turning back. It's again, it's this, when we think of even the word decision and that Latin word desidere, it literally means to cut off. She's like, I'm cutting off all my other options. I'm cutting off my security. I'm cutting everything off that the world would say because I'm all in on following Jesus. This is the place to be. And so the question becomes, as we encounter the presence of God in this story, is Jesus simply useful to you or has he become beautiful to you? Jesus is beautiful to Mary. He's captivated by her. She's captivated by his love, his affection. It's not simply useful. It's not the sampling of Jesus when, he's, when it's convenient. She's like, no, my only response is worship. He is beautiful. In Ray Ortland's commentary in the book of Isaiah, particularly in chapter 53, where it speaks of the substitutionary work of this, this lamb that would be slaughtered who is silent before his shears, that goes to his impending death to bring about new life. He writes about the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. Friends, like, we won't surrender until we get this glimpse of what Christ has done. So hear these words. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but just, like, let it wash over you. Be reminded, this is the story that you're part of. He writes, look at him. Look at Jesus, and by faith, See his dying love for you. What is it worth? His blood is flowing down into pools at the foot of that cross. But it doesn't lie there in waste and loss. It flows out toward us, guilty, sad us. And his blood flows out toward a woman who has shamed herself in a desperate craving to be loved. And his blood washes her shame clean off her. Then that sh same shame flows back to the cross where it shames Jesus and is no longer her burden to bear. His blood flows out toward a man held in bondage to lust. He has discovered too late that there is no comfort there, only emptiness and self-hatred. But the blood of Jesus flows out to that man, cleanses him entirely, and takes that painful wrong back to the cross where Jesus suffers for it as his own wrong, freeing that man forever. The blood of Jesus is flowing out to sinners of all kinds, taking from them their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears and despair, and giving them a whole new life. Jesus is saying to you right now, I don't want you to bear your burden one moment longer. Let my chastisement give you peace. Let my stripes heal you. Who wouldn't want that? When we understand that, when that begins to grip our hearts, surrender. 
humility. We get rid of trusting in the security of this world. We're vulnerable. We open ourselves up to ridicule. We're like, I don't care if I look like a fool. I'm following Jesus. We'll close with this. You imagine that that pervasive smell for a moment, that fragrance of the gospel, that fragrance that reminds us that we're part of a story. It's not the, the way of power and might that the world espouses, but of humility and of weakness, of a Roman cross, an execution device that's going to be turned upside down in order to give us life. Like, that's the story. That's the fragrance. We don't know this for sure. This is surely speculative. But if we're a week before Jesus' death, you've ever had something like that gets on your skin, you're like, man, it's like three days later and you're still like, you're still smelling it, right? I just have to imagine. There's, it's likely he went to the cross with that smell on him. That house was filled with it. Not sure Mary got it out of, out of her hair very quickly, right? I'm guessing the shampoo wasn't as good back then. Like, this scent would have permeated everything. And Jesus says, you've done this as preparation for my burial. Again, it's at this whole other layer here. Like, God is scheming. God is bringing this about. It's not coincidence that it's the time of the Passover, which is what? Another substitution story. And so there's this scent and there's this fragrance. And what would often happen in, in Roman culture is the Romans would go out and they would conquer particular, like new people, they'd go out and they'd come back in and they would lead this triumphal procession, whether it be the Caesars or one of, you know, a general or whatnot, and they would, they would come back and there would be this royal sort of march with all this pomp and circumstance. And there would be those that were priests that would have this sort of scent and this fragrance that would go out in the air. It was just this sign of victory, except for those that were in the line that had been conquered. And it's this sort of image as we talk about this scent that Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He talks of this processional. And he talks about this aroma. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. Not your triumphal procession, not mine, right? Christ. And through us, though, spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So apparently, we bring our smell. It's a good thing. It's the aroma of Christ. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? And there's two layers with this. On the one hand, know this, because of the work of Christ, you're part of that triumphal procession. And yet, we are also servants or slaves of Christ. He has conquered us. And now we gladly serve him. And so everywhere we go, we're this aroma of Christ. It's the aroma regardless. How people respond to it will be very different. We see that, don't we? Some believe after Lazarus is raised from the dead, and some want to kill Jesus. There's no middle ground here. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. There's no sampling of Jesus. There's no sampling of the gospel. There's a complete surrender. And our calling and our invitation is we now are the aroma of Christ. We're on this procession. And so when you go, when you leave here today, listen, You've gathered as a church. The church doesn't stop. We go out. You'll go to a restaurant. You bring the aroma of Christ. You go to your neighborhood, the aroma of Christ. You go to your school, the aroma of Christ. Your workplace, your home, your marriage, your parenting, your recreation, whatever it is, the aroma of Christ. So it's worth asking, well, how's our smell? 
Are we bringing the aroma of Christ? Are we bringing the good news of the gospel? It's not up to us to change how people respond. We're simply called to be faithful to follow Jesus like Mary surrendered, and she's just doused in it. I mean, it's in her hair. It's everywhere. Like that scent, that's where we're going with the gospel. Some will believe, some won't. That's not for me to figure out. That pre- the pressure's off. But we get to follow Jesus, and it's this reminder of the upside-down way that God works. The story of this, this aroma of Christ, it's always about weakness that actually leads to strength in Christ. Kent Hughes summarizes it this way. The fragrance of Christ can only come through being led in triumphal procession as captives of the cross. The way to live is to understand that weakness, suffering, and death are the means by which the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ wafts to the ends of the earth. The world doesn't need you and me with our arrogance and our pride saying, look at us, follow us, we've got it figured out. What the world needs, what the culture needs, what this church needs is a group of people that understand our weakness, our suffering, our ultimate death. The the aroma of Christ begins to waft and begins to go out. And it encourages the body here. It spills out into your homes, into your neighborhoods, into your workplaces. That's our calling. We, by God's grace, are the aroma of Christ. You've got an incredible role and responsibility in the kingdom of God. And we get to do this together. So the calling is in light of Jesus in light of the substitutionary work, would we surrender and would we embrace being that aroma of Christ? So I want to give a moment as the worship team comes back up as we think through responding, praying that the the Spirit would lead where we need to repent. We've made the story about us, power, our might, our privilege, all those things, right? And we would remember the story of the cross, the story of the gospel, and we get to rejoice together. And one of the ways we get to rejoice is through communion, through this meal. So if you're a follower of Christ during the next song that's being sung, I invite you to come up and grab the elements on either side of the stage and take them back to your seat. And after the song concludes, I'll be back up and call us together and we'll partake together. If you're gathered with us at home, you can gather elements there and partake in your home. But let me pray for us and let's prepare together for this meal. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus, thank you for your substitutionary work for the Father's glory and for our great joy. We thank you for your faithfulness that took you all the way to a cross. We thank you for this meal that you've given to us, this means of grace that we might be nourished, that we might taste and know again, God, that that you are good and that you are kind. You're gracious, you're loving. And God, would you cause us to be a church that more and more is the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of Christ. May we not give in to the narrative of the world that says it's all about us, but would we be people that willingly surrender, that we would die to self, that we would sacrifice knowing that that's the best possible life to live because we're following Jesus.
But the times that we fail, which will be often, Jesus, we thank you that our status does not change, our identity does not change, that we are fully loved by you because we have your righteousness. May this meal remind us of that glorious truth. So hear our praises now. God, would you be honored and glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.